0: Welcome to Atopic Dermatitis in the Child Zero to Two Years of Age, Moderate to Severe. My name is Albert Yan. I'm currently serving as the Chief of the Section of Dermatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm also a professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The following program is approved for CME, CNE, CPE, and AAPA credits. You can download a PDF of the presentation under the event resources tab on the left side of your screen under the headshot. You'll be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. The program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, which is an HMT company. The program is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer. The learning objectives today include atopic dermatitis treatment approaches specific to ages zero to two for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. To optimally integrate into clinical practice, the biologics and small molecule inhibitory agents recently approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis based on efficacy and safety data. To effectively manage treatment side effects and to outline safety and efficacy data emerging treatments for atopic dermatitis. As part of this discussion, we're going to discuss issues related to moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in the infant and young toddler, highlighting the fact that there is limited data and few drugs specifically FDA approved in this age group. So I'll provide an update on data that exists informed by my own clinical experience on the subject. Some of the uses of these medications may be technically off-label, and I'll highlight some of the fascinating speculation on factors that predispose to atopic dermatitis and whether specific interventions might alter some of these predispositions to atopy. I do need to disclose that I've served as a consultant for Cutania, Pfizer, Regeneron Sanofi, and Verica. Let's start with what atopic dermatitis looks like in the infant. Experience experienced clinicians like yourselves know that atopic dermatitis is pretty easy to recognize in the infant. Erythema, scaling, excoriations in the infant look very similar to what you see in older kids, but in infants there is a predilection for the face with that characteristic perinasal sparing. You can see concentration in flexural crease areas. But infants tend to have more facial involvement and more generalized disease than older kids and adults. The other thing that's characteristic of the infant period is food allergy. And this is something that can present during the infantile period. And it's important for clinicians like yourselves to be able to recognize when atopic dermatitis may be associated with an underlying food allergy. While the majority of patients with atopic dermatitis don't have food allergies. The more severe the eczema is, the more likely you are to have an underlying relevant food allergy. In babies and toddlers who have GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and particularly if those symptoms are severe, leading to dysphagia, reflux, dehydration, or lethargy, you may want to think about an underlying uh, food allergy comorbidity and consider referral and consultation with an allergist. Eosinophil exophagitis um, is associated with atopic dermatitis. Oftentimes, it's more moderate to severe. And infants with this often have significant GI disease in terms of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, dysphagia, and reflux. Those with an even more severe food allergy, FPIES, or food protein intolerance enterocolitis syndrome, May have very similar presentations vomiting diarrhea, lethargy, dehydration, and failure to thrive and these conditions often are marked by significant eosinophilia in the short term. These may look like kids who have eczema who have recurrent stomach bugs, but in reality may have an underlying significant food allergy syndromic association. so it's important to be um, on the lookout for these because you can oftentimes recognize it when you're evaluating the skin and taking a good history. One of the interesting and exciting developments in the food allergy world suggests that we may be able to make some headway in reducing uh, food allergy development with early interventions. In the LEAP study, looking at over 600 infants at risk for having allergies, these kids were randomized to receive either avoidance of peanuts or receive peanut protein up until 60 months of age or five years of age. Some of these kids were already skin prick positive, but many were skin prick negative, negative. and what they found was actually quite surprising. In, in contrast to Dogma, they found that consumption of peanut protein, whether you were skin prick negative when you started or skin prick positive when you started, you had a much lower rate of subsequent peanut allergy later peanut allergy sensitization when compared with those who strictly avoided peanut protein. This suggests that early exposure to food allergens like peanuts and possibly others may reduce your risk of having later peanut allergy. And this sets up this model of early intervention, possibly altering the trajectory of more severe later disease. Of course, some people may take it a little far, This is an example of an attempt to provide cutaneous uh, application to provide longer-term benefit. I'm not sure if this one really worked. Now early intervention is not as simple as giving early peanut protein and eliminating later peanut allergy. Um, The story we now understand is becoming more complex because there are other factors that play a role in modifying the risk of a food allergy and uh, this may be important in understanding skin disease. Staph aureus colonization for instance alters your risk for food allergy. Kids who have the presence of staph aureus in the nares or on the skin in the context of atopic dermatitis uh, appear to have significantly increased odds of having food allergy even if you're getting intentional early exposure. And so this is a modifying factor that seems to inhibit the development of tolerance and suggest the possibility that there might be some way to manipulate the microbiome in reducing staph colonization and improving our ability to develop uh, tolerance to some of these allergens and reduce uh, epicutaneous sensitization. Now, let's talk a little bit about age-based phenotypes. This is one of the hot things in atopic dermatitis right now, Um, and there are really two main approaches to looking at age-based phenotypes. There's the group that looks at breaking up kids with eczema into different age-based groups and studying them. And then there have been several investigations looking at the natural history of kids with atopic dermatitis over time and trying to determine if there are naturally occurring um, longitudinal phenotypes and what that looks like. So let's talk about this. In this particular study here, Uh, of which I was a part. Um, We looked at the PEER database, um, which is a large uh, database of subjects who received um, calcineurin inhibitors, pemicrolimus. In this particular study, we had about 4,000 subjects with atopic dermatitis identified who had a median follow-up of about seven and a half years and were between the ages of two and 17. Based on some statistical analyses, we were able to determine that. Um, the kids would could be broken up into three main age groups, the zero to two group or less than two year old group wh- who had early onset eczema, the um, n- mid onset group who had eczema start between ages three and seven, and then the late onset group who had their atopic dermatitis develop after eight years of age and were between eight and 17. The eight-year-old age group seemed to correlate with the presence or absence of filaggrin mutations. It was a convenient um, breakpoint based on some of the data that exists differentiating these subtypes, and so that's the uh, that's the um, substratification that we identified for this particular study. And what we looked at was whether or not having your onset of eczema at these particular times correlated with having other atopic comorbidities like asthma. And what we found is that the earlier the onset of eczema, the more likely you were to have these atopic comorbidities. We then looked at uh, whether or not these age groups correlated with um, more persistent disease or difficulty controlling the disease. And again, what we found is that the kids who had their onset in the very early age group, zero to two, had the strongest risk for having more persistent disease over time when compared with mid-onset and late onset. So that's a special group. The infant onset group tends to have more persistent disease, more association with atopic comorbidities. And so these are the kids where um, we wanna treat them uh, appropriately, potentially a little more aggressively to be able to control their disease because we know that they're gonna have more difficulty with control in some cases, and that some of these intervention studies um, should consider targeting uh, the early age group so that we can alter their trajectory for atopic dermatitis later. This graph just highlights the um, persistence of the disease over time, that the early onset kids tended to have more persistent disease when compared with the later onset, kids who tended to remit earlier during their late adolescence. Now, there's been a lot of interest in looking, as I mentioned earlier, at atopic dermatitis phenotypes over time using these um, latent class analyses to try to determine how eczema evolves over time in different subset groups. In this particular study by Rodoui out of Zurich, they used the latent class analysis model and identified four classes in the thousand or so children that they evaluated as part of the European birth cohort. These kids were followed from the time they were in the womb and then followed after uh, for a period of time to understand kind of what their eczema looked like over time. And they were able to identify two early onset phenotypes, an early transient and an early persistent group and then a later onset group that tended to have their peak during mid-childhood. Most of the patients in their study actually had very little eczema or very transient eczema, um, followed by the early group, and then a very small percentage had the later onset. So what they found in their particular study is that um, early persistent disease was more likely to be associated with asthma comorbidities. Early transient disease was more strongly associated with food allergies, um, although that could also be seen with the early persistence. And then the late mid-childhood group tended to have a stronger association with allergic rhinitis. So the utility of this model is to be able to kind of stratify out and separate out um, these groups of kids who may have different risks for specific comorbidities based on when their um, eczema starts. In this Otternoster study, which is one of the other major studies that have been uh, published recently, they looked at two longitudinal birth cohorts out of the United Kingdom and the Netherlands. And again, using a latent class analysis approach, they were able to identify, in this case, six different latent classes in their cohorts and they seem to kind of parallel each other in the United Kingdom cohort and the Netherlands cohort. What they found is that the majority of patients had very transient remitting atopic dermatitis. That was about two-thirds of the kids. About one-quarter of the kids ended up with an early onset pattern, although they identified three different patterns of early onset, one that resolved early, one that resolved late, and one that was persistent. And then a mid-onset group that peaked around age five to six, and then another group that kind of resolved late, um, correlating with uh, what we talked about earlier with the um, late onset group. They looked at associations with comorbidities, and what I'm just going to highlight here is that um, there was a stronger association with uh, filaggrin mutations in the early onset group, and also a strong association with atopic comorbidity, specifically asthma in the early onset group, although um, you could also see some increase in the um, mid onset and late onset as well. So, what does this tell us? This is a summary of those studies um, that we just went through, highlighting the fact that having early onset atopic dermatitis tended to be associated with um, more persistence and greater association with the mutations, as well as uh, associations with other atopic comorbidities. And this slide summarizes all the things we just talked about. And one of the other interesting things is that um, evidence has continued to mount with regard to the hygiene hypothesis that early microbial exposure may reduce the risk of atopic disease. In this study by the Swedish group Hesselmar and colleagues, they looked at um, dirty pacifiers, pacifiers that fell on the ground and were just kind of wiped off or licked and then put back in the child's mouth versus pacifiers that were subsequently sterilized or washed and then given back to the kids. And so for sake of um, ease of discussion, I'm just going to talk about the dirty versus the clean pacifier. And this study found that Dirty pacifiers tended to confer some protection against asthma risk and eczema risk. But the odds ratio for asthma being only 0.12 in the dirty pacifier group and the eczema risk um, being 0.37 in terms of the odds risk in the dirty pacifier group. So there were significant reductions in um, atopic dermatitis and asthma in those receiving the dirty pacifiers for what it's worth. Similarly, um, using um, dishwashing as a proxy for microbial exposure where um, hand washing results in presumably more microbe exposure versus machine dishwashing leading to um, less microbial exposure. The same group identified the fact that there was a 0.57 odds ratio when you hand washed your dishes of having atopic disease. And that this also seemed to correlate with other proxies for microbial exposure, like eating fermented foods or getting food from farms. And that um, the risk for having atopic dermatitis seemed to drop by about 50% uh, when compared with the other group receiving um, their dishes that were machine washed. And the uh, the risk reduction seemed to be even greater for asthma, with a 75% uh, reduction for those. Hand washing their dishes as opposed to um, having the machine washed. Now, of course, there are some confounders to this, but again, taken as a whole, it suggests that early microbial exposure may be protected. Um, and there's other data corroborating this. The pediatrics article by Lynch highlighting that some suckers and nail biters get more microbial exposure, presumably, and they also had a significant reduction in their risk for um, Topic sensitization. And finally, in terms of the recent literature, there was this article out of the New England Journal that suggested that Amish who traditionally or who farm in traditional ways compared to Hutterites, who are geographically in the same area and similar culturally, um, who um, machine using industrialized farming methods um, tended to have very significant microbial exposures. Um, when you you look at bacterial endotoxin levels in the homes, the Amish homes had significantly greater levels compared to the Hutterite homes who used machine farming. And as a result, the um, Hutterite children who had less microbial exposure had four to six times higher rates of asthma and allergic sensitization, again lending credence to the hygiene hypothesis that early microbial exposure may be protective. Now what about more practical things? Um, Since we can't always choose where we live or choose whether we want to bite our nails or suck on our fingers, so there's some interesting um, evidence on early intervention with emollients. A lot of this looked very promising early on where use of emollients as early as three weeks of age, up to six months of age uh, were implemented for kids who are randomized to receive either emollients or no emollients and followed for a period of time, and those in the emollient group had about a 50% relative risk reduction in atopic dermatitis at the end of the study period. This suggests a safe, simple, low-cost intervention for at-risk infants um, who are at risk for having atopic dermatitis, so those who had have siblings of have atopy or parents have atopy. But this needs validation in larger studies and longer-term follow-up to determine what the optimal timing and the types of emollients that work best. Unfortunately, while some early studies um, on the heels of the original Simpson article suggested that there might be some benefit, other studies since then randomizing children to receive early emollients or or no emollients versus intermittent emollient use have not validated this thus far. So there are variations in study design. They're heterogeneous in that way, and so it's still unclear what the specific Uh, Approaches should be taken, but it does suggest that maybe there's a way to reduce the incidence through some simple early prophylactic measures. But it's clear that a lot more work needs to be done as to how this is going to work. Now, let's talk more specifically about um, atopic skin care. Um, Many of us adjust bathing practices, and although Um, I think there's a lot of common ground in terms of using gentle soaps or cleansers that are pH balanced, um, using things in the pH 5.5 range. Unfortunately, most liquid cleansers nowadays that are designed for kids do have relatively low pHs. Uh, Many of the emollients also um, have relatively low pH and are pretty good at providing uh, barrier improvement. Um, In terms of bathing, There's a lot of controversy as to whether or not we should approach um, kids with a dry school method to reduce irritant contact and reduce barrier dysfunction, or go with the wet approach, where we reduce allergen contact and reduce infection. Um, I tend to do a mix of both, depending on the season, where with short sleeves, there's more allergen contact, I tend to bathe more often. In the winter, when there's less allergen contact and greater barrier dysfunction, I'll tend to bathe less. There's some data to suggest that bathing less tends to increase hydration in the skin, as per Larry Eggenfield's early study, um, measuring water content in the skin. However, uh, a more recent study um, published in Clinical Pediatrics suggested that at least when you're looking at eczema scoring systems, the SCORAD in this case, whether you bathe once a day or bathe twice a week, there were no significant differences in this very small, sh- short study. So I don't think I, I don't think this is definitive, but I think right now um, both systems work and I don't feel strongly about pushing either one at this point. I think there are more important things to argue about in terms of um, gentle soaps and cleansers, avoiding fragrances and botanicals, and focusing more on improving that skin barrier. Now, it's also important for kids to have, have their skin monitored for infection. Kids with atopic dermatitis are at significantly greater risk for superinfection. And although staph aureus is probably the principal one that you're going to be seeing and dealing with, I want to highlight certain um, less typical ones that I don't want you to miss. First off, when you're seeing grouped pustules vesicles on a somewhat inflamed face, normally you would typically think about HSV. But I also want to highlight that this particular presentation, which has a concentration, especially on the face, oftentimes with uh, surrounding cellulitis, periorbital distribution, these are examples of group A strep infection that can look very similar to HSV. This clinical picture is characterized by crops of vesicles and pustules with background cellulitic erythema. And although staph is much more common, strep is important to recognize because in places where you use Bactrim, or sulfa as your um, choice of antibiotic to avoid um, missing MRSA. The problem is, trimethoprim sulfa also misses, um, uh, tends to miss strep pyogenes. So, this is something to keep in mind because um, if you have a particularly sick looking kid with super infection, you need to make sure you cover for strep as well. Now, this is more typical of HSV. Crusted areas with punched out erosions, as you're seeing here. And then, if you have something that looks like HSV that doesn't test positive on your PCR or viral culture or direct fluorescent antibody, um, but for all intents and purposes, looks like HSV, blisters grouped on erythematous bases, you also have to think about other viral superinfections, especially when they're around the mouth, hands, and feet, you would typically think about. Exactly. This, these are forms of capaces form eruption, eczema herpeticum with HSV or capaces form eruption, or eczema copfacium, as some people call it, uh, can be uh, a, a sequela of enteroviral infection. In these cases, I tend to temporarily take a break on the topical steroids and calcineurin inhibitors that I may be using or PDE4 inhibitors. We'll consider admission for the sicker looking kids because we know they're going to tend to get worse before they get better. Think about um, intravenous acyclovir and anticephalococcal antibiotics and restart topical therapy after two to three days of stabilization. Now, what about prevention? Um, To minimize the risk of superinfection, we'll tend to think about sodium hypochlorite um, or dilute bleach baths. Um, This can reduce inflammation and microbial overload on the skin, particularly from staph. The recipe we tend to use is about an eighth to a half a cup per 30-gallon tub of water and bathe for about five to ten minutes once or twice a week, rinse off and pat dry. Use a white towel so you don't bleach colored fabrics, and that can help reduce that risk. And what about antihistamines? Antihistamines are commonly asked for from the parents. Systematic reviews don't really support use of antihistamines for atopic dermatitis, at least for relief of eczema or improvement of the eczema. However, I will say that um, for kids, especially around bedtime, it can really help them sleep. So that's based on clinical experience, and, um, and I think there's still a role for that particular use at bedtime. What about topical steroids? How do you approach the use of these agents? Well. Um, There's still first line therapy, and I know um, this particular audience is very comfortable using topical steroids, um, even in infants, but I want to highlight certain caveats. One is that low potency topical steroids F four through seven, for instance, especially hydrocortisone, alphaflametaone desonide, these have a very good safety track record. data uh, sent to the FDA looking at, um, at uh, hormonal suppression testing. Showed that there is very little risk for um, uh, HP axis suppression in these kids when using low potency topical steroids, even for a month at a time. By contrast, high potency topical steroids like clobetasol, betamethasone dipropionate, um, these are at much greater uh, risk for causing HP axis suppression in these kids. So, what to do in terms of using topical steroids in infants and um, and young toddlers, especially when you're dealing with moderate to severe eczema, you're going to need to use some of these more potent topical steroids. So when using topical steroids in infants and young toddlers, it's important to be able to figure out how to approach this, especially since for the moderate to severe kids, you're going to be needing to use some of the stronger topical. So what do I do to avoid trouble with topical steroids? For the kids using the lower potency topical agents, I'll typically supervise them by seeing them every six months, but the stronger the potency, the more frequently I'll need to see them back for monitoring. I'll tend to limit the amount prescribed, um, giving them a limited number of refills. I'll remind them to use it intermittently, oftentimes Monday through Friday, and take breaks on the weekend, especially when using the stronger, higher potency and I'll monitor their tubes. I'll have them bring in their medications so we can see how much they're actually going through. Make sure we build in breaks and educate them about warning signs, skin translucency, hypopigmentation, increased veininess of the skin so that they know what to look for. In terms of maintenance therapy, a lot of kids do great when getting their topical steroids, but once they stop, they tend to break out again. So in terms of maintenance, We give them other things to do so that they don't tend to break out again and then keep calling you in the office. Emollients tend to be steroid sparing. You can also rotate them from topical steroids onto calcineurin inhibitors. You can also consider intermittent proactive therapy where you have them continue topical medication two to three times a week instead of every day once their skin is under better control. And then the dental bleach baths may also play a role. In this and reducing their uh, recurrent flaring. I'll also provide a therapeutic ladder, give them guideposts for when to use which medication. Um, we do that a lot with uh, kids with asthma using a red light, green light, yellow light motif. And we can do something similar with um, atopic kids as well. When they're dry, they can use their emollient. When they're dry and itchy, they can start a low potency topical steroid once they're flaring, they may need a mid or higher potency topical steroid, especially for kids who are who are historically moderate to severe. Halogenation um, is, a, is a marker for um, steroids that may have greater potency because they tend to have longer half-lives in the skin. And for the mild to moderate kids, we'll tend to use non-halogenated steroids, but for the moderate to severe kids, we may need to use a, a stronger halogenated steroid to provide better relief. Which steroids we use depends in large part nowadays on insurance coverage. So this is a list here of the generic options that are widely available across um, insurance plans, particularly Medicaid programs. Um, So I oftentimes list these so that people have um, some common ones that they can use in the low, mid, and higher potency range. They also tend to have a few additives. So they're less likely to contact sensitized in some ways. Um, So this is a list of some of the more common ones, and I'll also use additional ones, as we talked about earlier, such as desonide and alclometasone on the milder range, and add some additional higher potency alternatives as well. What can be particularly challenging is when kids have more widespread disease, particularly when they're infants, because they have such a large body surface area relative to their weight, and so there's a greater risk for systemic absorption of some of these agents topical calcineurin inhibitors are one type of steroid sparing alternative. Um, These have a good track record for safety. They've been around for about 20 years now. And pemicrolimus tends to be a little bit milder or um, more indicated from mild to moderate, whereas uh, tacrolimus or protopic um, is indicated for more moderate to severe. And um, and These are nice non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They can be safe for use on the face, around the eyes, genital areas, and they're considered second-line therapy for kids who are at least two years of both age or older. So using it in younger kids, which I do from time to time, is considered off-label, and um, although I think it is beneficial, it's getting harder to do because of um, insurance uh, approvals or lack thereof uh, for kids under two. When I do use them and am able to get them for the kids, Um, especially when they're more severe and we can write for specific prior authorizations and provide appeals. Um, I do still have to explain the box warning to the families because of the concern over TCI-related malignancies. Fortunately, with the long-term peer and APLs databases that have been tracking um, the registry of patients who have been using these medications over the last uh, uh, 20 years or so, um, almost 20 years now, these uh, have shown no significant signal at this point to date that there is a, a higher risk for um, malignancy in those using these medications. So I think in many cases, as long as the kids aren't eating the medicine out of the tube, I can usually persuade the parents to use these medications when it's appropriate. So these are the calcium inhibitors, um, and, and I do find a use for them off label in kids under two. Topical chondroitin. I've also used off-label in kids under two years of age. Again, this is a steroid-sparing alternative. The advantage of this over the calcineurin inhibitors is that it doesn't carry a boxed warning label, and I sometimes have an easier time getting insurance coverage for kids under two um, for that reason. Um, this is a PDE4 inhibitor that is uh, a more selective target. Um, for reducing inflammation in the skin, it's rapidly absorbed, and you get a steady state relatively quickly, gets converted to inactive metabolites, um, has a good safety track record overall thus far, and it can be pretty effective for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, and I'll often combine it with topical steroid when using it for more moderate to severe kids. Um, data suggests that it reduces investigator global scores, so the kids get better noticeably in terms of their skin findings. And what's particularly interesting is how quickly it reduces itching in a statistically significant way. Um, my only caveat is that it can cause burning and stinging in a small subset of patients, which limits my use of it to some degree, but the majority of patients um, tolerate it actually quite well. So that's Kind of the general uh, summary of atopic dermatitis regimen approaches and strategies for kind of um, minimizing some of the side effects related to these agents. So, thank you much for taking this journey with me today and learning about atopic dermatitis in the very young child. I hope this has been helpful to you and um, thank you again for your attention.